Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes and to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you're of a certain microgeneration, say born between 1976 and 1983, what's sometimes called the Oregon Trail generation, there's a chance you've seen a movie called Saved. Uh, a lot of people know it as the Macaulay Culkin movie he made after being a child star. Uh, it stars Jenna Malone and Mandy Moore, along with Patrick Fugit and Heather Matazzaro. The movie's set in a pretty typical evangelical high school uh, in which all the students are supposed to love Jesus and hate sex. And of course, they're teenagers, and teenagers act the way that teenagers act. Anyway, Jenna Malone's character gets pregnant with her boyfriend, played by Patrick Fugit, uh, who turns out to be gay, and so they have to navigate all of those landmines in their subculture. So anyway, under, underlying the events of the movie is this idea of a purity culture that among American evangelical youth, especially in the 90s and, and 2000s, became a really all-consuming and ubiquitous phenomenon for young people. And it made its way into popular culture in a pretty big way as well, as a lot of the big youth celebrities of that period of time embraced this idea of remaining pure until such time as they were ready to meet the love of their life, get married, and live happily ever after. Anyway, one of those people is my guest today. About 10 years ago, Linda K. Klein was living in New York City, and she decided to leave the city and go speak to people like herself who had grown up with the purity movement and talk to them openly and chronicle their stories about what actually happened to them, what happened when they became adults, how they dealt with it, and how they are coping with it today, dealing with the trauma of a childhood that really ended up being taken away from them. The result is her book, Pure, uh, which is available anywhere books are sold and is a remarkable and insightful read. And I'm so grateful it brings her here today to talk to me about it in person. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. I think I'm hanging in there. Yeah, all things considered, right? How, how about you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? It's so hard. It's so hard to answer that question right now. First, I w- want to say to you that um, this is just kind of a funny story uh, that I remember probably in my early 20s to mid 20s, maybe 24, 25, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine over lunch. And for some reason, we were talking about <laughs> the notion of you know, becoming famous and what that would be like and whether or not we'd want to be famous. And, and I was like, you know, I never wanted to be famous and I don't, I don't want to have fans and I don't want to have the paparazzi in my face all the time. I don't even know why I'd be famous, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, so I said to her, like, my ideal level of fame is the, 
being interviewed by Terry Gross level of fame. So as as someone who has been interviewed by Terry Gross. Yeah, I mean it's kind of great being a writer because because being a writer you're you're so anonymous, you know? It's really people don't often know your face. Um they certainly would not recognize you. Like I have never been walking down the street and had someone be like, oh, "What, Linda K. Klein?" <laughs> you know, but um, but but you know, but I get to I get to interact in a, in a way that is um, you know, at scale, right? I get to talk to a lot of people, but I don't get recognized. So it's interesting. It kind of reminds me a little bit of when I <laughs> was you know, growing up in, in, you know, small town USA in the Midwest. And one of my friends was in a band that started to become like local famous. And I remember him saying to me one day, oh, I can't even go to a restaurant without someone recognizing me. So, so, so I am less famous than that in that I am not, in that I am not recognized in restaurants at all. When you say that, I think about even my most beloved writers, like the ones that I read a lot. And I can only think of maybe two or three that I know for sure I would recognize if I saw them in the street. Yeah, yeah. The only one I can think of off the top of my head is like Bart Ehrman, which, and that's because he's on all of the documentaries too. So um, yeah, unless you start being like Elaine Pagels and, and, and Bart Ehrman and just being on every single, you know, Talking Head documentary. Um, I think you'll be you'll be safe. But I also don't think Elaine Pagels is necessarily hounded by people looking for her autograph in restaurants. So, well, listen, I'll tell you something interesting that does happen to me. Um, I regularly will tell people about my work because you know people will say, "What do you do?" or "What have you?" And it, it has happened to me on many many occasions that people have said, "Oh, you should read this book," <laughs> and then I'll say, "Oh, I I think I think that." I think I know that book. Are you talking about Pure? And they'll say yes, and I'll say, "Well, I'm I'm the author of that book." And they look at me like, "You just like you random person that I am talking with." Like they look at me so skeptically, right? It's it sounds like there's a new sort of angle of insight that you're getting on other people now um, in this position than you wouldn't have had otherwise, which is uh, really interesting. Like when you whenever you enter into a subculture or sort of a um, different kind of pocket of culture, right? Those those things kind of come out in a way that they were yeah. only kind of theoretical before. But um, well, now now I, now I know that uh, what to expect when I finally get around to writing my best-selling YA fantasy novel um, right, series. Right. That is, you know, the next the next Harry Potter. Uh, oh, don't worry, you're a man. You'll be in much better shape. <laughs> I, I suspect that most of the people listening to this um, will have very little familiarity with the the culture the book discusses most people are not I, I think you and I are exceptions to the rule um this is sort of the world that we are both quite familiar with in in various ways so if you can give a little bit of a um overview of kind of what the purity movement was or is and and what made you finally say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write this book. Well, I mean, I think the population is probably bigger than you might suspect. Um, you know, the purity movement, which is is really built upon, I would say, a global foundation of 
of very strong gender and sexual control that is so normalized that we don't even notice it in many cases. Um, you know, the purity movement was born out of the white evangelical Christian church, which, you know, is about 25% of the country, um, maybe, you know, going down to a closer to 20% now, but we're still talking about a significant population, right? Um, so, you know, and that was really the birthplace of the purity movement and the purity movement, uh, you know, as I said, built upon this larger foundation of kind of agreed upon patriarchy and sexual shame and so on and so forth that I would argue we have, uh, as a larger society, you know, brought this to the next level and said, there are two types of people and in particular, two types of girls and women, those who are pure and those who are impure. And largely, we are going to define people's purity based on their sexual thoughts and feelings and certainly their sexual actions. But if you're a girl or a woman, we're also going to define your purity based on other people's thoughts and feelings about you that you are said to have inspired, right, based on wearing the wrong thing or walking the wrong way or talking the wrong way or whatever is considered to um, to be something that deemed you as impure that day. So it's really, it's really a culture of trying to eradicate all sexuality, all sexuality within yourself, all sexuality within others that you might um, be accused of having inspired. And if you can do that, if you can be utterly free, utterly, utterly pure of all sexuality until the day that you get married, then suddenly you'll get married and you'll be able to flip your sexuality on like a light switch and you will have not only positive, healthy, loving sex, but you will have wild mutual orgasms, you know, incredible sex, because certainly no sex and no sexual thoughts or feelings or urges or anything makes for a fantastic recipe for um, sexual exuberance, you know, on the other side of marriage. Unfortunately, what really ends up happening oftentimes is that people get so good at turning off their sexuality when they're um, in their single years, that they often cannot turn their sexuality on. They're sometimes physically stopped from being able to do so. They're sometimes emotionally blocked from being able to do so. Or maybe they can be sexual, but they're disconnected, they're disassociating, they're not really present, right? You know, and then there are other people who can't turn their sexuality off, you know, despite them, you know, giving it their best go, right? Certainly I was in that category where I really tried to be non-sexual in every way. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, even when I was succeeding within myself, I was sexualized by my community who said that I was inspiring sexual thoughts in other people. And so that creates, you know, a, a different kind of relationship to self and body, um, you know, that's, that's similar. It's the similar sort of state of sexual shame and sexual fear and sexual anxiety that I personally experienced and have heard from so many people often manifest in ways that are really quite similar to PTSD. You talk about something in the book uh, called RTS, religious trauma syndrome, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and that being something that I guess as of the time that you wrote the book was still there were some people kind of arguing for it to be recognized as an official psychological condition. How would you differentiate, first of all, how would you define RTS and how would you differentiate it from PTSD? Isn't it 
basically the same thing or is there something you think fundamentally unique about that that's condition? a good question yeah so the the folks who were presenting um rts would say that it mimics a number of other things for example uh some of the folks that i have spoken with or that i work with talk about uh being diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder by their therapists who often don't understand religious trauma and spiritual trauma and the very unique ways in which it shows up. They're told you have OCD around religious issues. You're obsessed with religion, right? You know, the reality is, is that for a lot of people coming out of religious environments, um, you know, this obsessive behavior, what some within deconstructing religious communities might call scrupulosity, is very common because you're taught to be obsessed. You're taught that you, um, you know, if you have an impure thought, it will be found out. You know, you're taught that if you have an impure feeling, it will be found out. You're taught that if you go on a date and kiss somebody and maybe you think that that was um, too far, that it's quite possible. Possible that someone is going to be behind you um, or around the corner, you know, making sure that that they are keeping you accountable, aka, you know, spying on you to make sure that you're following the rules. You know, these are real things that actually happen within these communities, and so this this kind of obsessiveness. Um, is actually kind of built into the model of the community in a way that makes its manifestation in people's lives um, to be quite quite um, normal, right? So, so this happens a lot where people are um, diagnosed with things because therapists don't understand the role that religion can play in people's lives in very damaging ways. Um, so, so RTS, they would say, would mimic a number of different conditions um, and appear to be other things um, when in reality they are rooted in a having grown up within a cultural context that shaped us in a particular way, but that we can, um, you know, that we can uh, change our, our brains. You know, we can actually, um, repave neural pathways and actually come out, uh, in a different way, you know, when we actually do the deep work to deconstruct and look at some of these things. So, so a diagnosis is not helpful. In fact, a diagnosis would actually be potentially, um, a way to convince somebody that yes, indeed, it is just that something is wrong with them and that it had nothing to do with the, the community within which they were raised. So, uh, so in terms of your own experience, you were kind of raised in this environment. This, this book is both, uh, it's kind of like memoir plus journalism plus therapy session, like also <laughs> rolled into one, right? <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. Sure. Uh, so so tell me a little bit about you. You and I met in New York City. Um, that was sort of the the midpoint of of your story, as far as this book goes. You were raised kind of in this culture. You found yourself in New York, and then after a number of years, you left to go start pursuing the writing of this book. What are sort of the the, the turning points for you? Like, how did you wind up in New York in the first place from a culture like this, which doesn't seem to be entirely compatible? uh with you know broadly speaking new york lifestyles right and and then what was the what was the mechanism if there was one that made you make that decision to say okay this is what i'm going to do and this is how i'm going to um 
Well, so I grew up in the Midwest and, um, uh, you know, the first thing I'll say is I grew up singing that song from Beauty and the Beast. I want much more than this provincial life. You know, like I would <laughs> yeah. go out, I would go out when school was over to my junior high and I would stand in the football field when no one was there in the wide and open and space. And everybody would like doff their hat to you as you walked by. And yeah, yeah. 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 Good day. Hello. <laughs> How is your family? And then the wind would blow my hair and I would imagine another life. So, that sounds great. Yeah, so, you know, so I mean, the truth is part of it, part of it was that, you know, there was just a, always a part of me that felt, felt like I didn't belong. But, um, but I actually had uh, believed that my, my bigger life was still going to be very much an evangelical life. I, in high school, had applied to Biola College, the Bible College of Los Angeles, um, to become a missionary. You know, so I knew I wanted to be in a big city. Um, but my dream was that I was going to become a, um, a theater troupe with a very cute boy in my youth group. The two of us, we both liked acting uh, and we were both Christians. So it seemed good. And um, we were going to become a theater troupe of two and uh, travel around the world and change people's hearts and minds and, and um inspire people to ask Jesus into their hearts. And so, so that was the plan. And, um, then my senior year of high school, I studied abroad in Australia and a couple of things happened while I was studying abroad. Uh, you know, the main thing is that I was separated from my community, um, and, and faced with a number of realities about my community, one of which was my youth pastor being convicted of child enticement with the intent to have sexual contact with a 12-year-old girl in my youth group. And I learned at that time that it was actually, you know, a pattern and that he had been quietly dismissed from two institutions before ours, from two evangelical institutions before ours for doing essentially the same thing with other girls. And I remember coming back from Australia and it was two weeks before I was supposed to go to Bible college and start my missionary training. And I sat my parents down and they were asking me about Australia. I was telling them about all the ways in which I felt like my life, my life um, plans had changed. And I said, you know, I don't think that I want to be a missionary anymore. Uh, you know, I'll go, I'll go for a year to Biola and then I'll transfer and I'll go somewhere else. I think I want to go to a secular school. And my dad, God bless him, said, you know, you don't have to waste all that money to go to a school you don't want to go to for a year. You could actually just pull out right now and spend a year working and, and find your way to the, to the best school for you, which was really a, a, an incredibly life-changing flexibility on his part, you know? And, and, and had he not said that, you know, I would have gone to Bible college and sure, maybe I would have transferred. Um, but you know, maybe I wouldn't have. And instead a year later, I found myself at Sarah Lawrence college, which is the epitome of, um, of the, of things that are not Bible college. Um, you know, it's really, it's a place of, it's a liberal arts school. It's incredibly liberal, particularly very sexually liberal. And I just remember being surrounded by people who had a very different relationship to sex and sexuality than I did. And here I was somebody who was raised to believe that purity was the most important thing. And I was surrounded by people who had a very different value set. 
and who were walking around with a confidence that I didn't have and a self-assuredness that I didn't have. And I really felt hungry for it in a lot of ways. And it was during these years that I ended up leaving evangelicalism and I was under the impression that, you know, when I left, that I would suddenly turn into my secular peers, that I would be capable of making my own choices about who I was as a person, um, a, a person particularly in a woman, you know, a woman, and who I was as a sexual person. And what I discovered is that even though I had left, the way in which I had been trained to see myself as a woman and to see myself as a sexual person was so deep inside of me that it was controlling me, though I was now at a moment in my life where I no longer agreed that women should be silent, um, though I don't think I ever really agreed fully with that, but certainly had had accepted that that was a necessary evil um, that teaching was a necessary evil to get the um, the things that I wanted, which was the love of God, right? Um, and and you know, I, I started to challenge those things intellectually, and yet when I would actually do something in my life that challenged them, you know, for example, I might speak up in class and disagree with a professor. You know, I could do that. And then afterward, I would spend days and weeks just beating myself up and being like, oh, can't believe you said that. Everyone must think that you think you're such a know-it-all, you know. Um, or I would – I announced at one point to my long-term boyfriend who I'd been seeing, um, you know, for many years that I was wanting to have sex outside of marriage. And that was a big deal for me. As seven years later, you know, we still hadn't done it. Because when I would actually try to do it, I would break down in tears and my eczema would come out, which comes out when I get stressed and I'd be scratching myself until I bled. And even though we then did not have sex, I would, uh, you know, be so paranoid that we'd gotten close enough to having sex that I would be taking pregnancy tests. So, so here I am in this incredibly liberal, you know, world and I can't, I can't, you know, function in basic ways, you know, nightmares, um, anxiety that was so strong that, you know, that I, I felt like, I felt like I couldn't breathe sometimes, right? And my peers looked at me and thought that there was something very wrong with me, <laughs> you know, and, and I felt the same way. I felt like I was utterly broken. And I remember trying for a lot of years to figure it out on my own. And it wasn't until I started to call up my girlfriends from back home in my church youth group and tell them what was happening to me in this kind of desperate hope that maybe I wasn't the only one and maybe they wouldn't think that something was terribly wrong with me. And I started to hear very similar stories from them about their lives, though they also had never told anybody. And those kind of whispered conversations became the beginning and over time became 15 years of interviews with people from around the country who were raised in evangelical churches, many of whom, most of whom were raised uh, as girls in white evangelical churches, about the ways in which purity teachings um, impact us as we become adults and specifically how it actually developmentally shapes us uh, and, and the deconstruction and work to heal that we often have to do afterward. So I'm going to ask you a 
pretty complicated question that you may have an immediate answer to, or you may have no answer to. Um, but I'm I'm very curious about this. So so there's something that I like a, a, a mental exercise I like to do sometimes where I imagine um, you know an alien landing on Earth and trying to explain any single subject to right to to just to someone who just has no context for anything, right? Um, <clears throat> And so one of the things that has always struck me about this movement and about a lot of um, fundamentalist Christianity and a lot of evangelical Christianity, even a lot of Catholicism, although I think there's some explanations as to some of those issues. But so here's here's the thing, right? So you this religion centers around this this guy who you point out in the book at one point um, is portrayed as a single man in his 30s. And it's right like that's jesus is that guy he's he we he's never talked about as being married right and and he's supposed to like he's the exemplar of human behavior for this religion um right. the gospels say nothing about sex basically at all right um with very 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 loose exceptions to that uh the the epistles of paul basically say like don't get married like if you're not married already just like stay unmarried and wait for the world to end right and yet, how how then, like, what happened? How did this religion that at its core seems to have really no interest in sexuality at all, how did it become or how did this sort of um, branch of it uh, become completely obsessed with gender roles and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Do you have any conception of that at all? Because it just isn't backed up. I mean, maybe the Old Testament, but it's not backed up by the new testament and i would have a really hard time explaining that to an alien right (laughs) i'm like and that's why they do this it's it it where's where does it come from honestly there are so many ways to answer that question because there's so many influences that have pushed christianity broadly and evangelical christianity specifically in that direction but you know some of the first influences are greco-roman culture you know, Christianity was heavily influenced by Greco-Roman culture and this teaching that the mind and the body were separate. And not only that the mind and the body were separate, but that the mind was better than the body and um, and should control the body. So even just that concept being a deeply cultural uh, concept that was that was such an important concept to early Christian thinkers, I think, had a, a huge influence. Then you've got a bunch of other folks, like you've got Augustine and more, uh, I mean, honestly, the work you haven't done on yourself, you know, it, it will come out in how you interact with others. But certainly if you're a teacher, right, the work that you haven't done on yourself will come out in ways that will impact others. And and my impression is that there was, there was some work on sexuality right. that needed to mm-hmm. be done, some mm-hmm. personal work, you know, there was a, a therapist that needed to be seen. And, uh, you know, and, and instead what we have is a, a huge influence of people who I think took ideas that in some cases were rooted in some very problematic um, ways of looking at self in the world and, um, and saw them as, as holy. You know, and then you've got, you know, bringing up, there's so many other influences I could name, but, you know, then you've got bringing us up to closer to, um, to this era, to the purity movement era, you've got a moment in which U.S. culture became um, very sexually free, 
right? Uh, you suddenly had you had this very different approach to sexuality. You had the free love era, you know, and that era was really terrifying to a lot of people. And then um, we had the AIDS epidemic, and I think a lot of people linked those two and said, you know, here we are having sex and you know dying. So, so there was a, a real cultural moment of uh, of fear, and uh, and a lot of people were trying to figure out how do we protect people, how do we keep people safe from sexually transmitted infections and um, diseases, and you know how do we how do we make sure that the next generation isn't going to be struggling um, the way that we are as we are watching people watching people die around us. And for a lot of people, that answer was healthy, uh, what I would call healthy sexuality education, you know, really informing people. And for a lot of other people, it was purity culture. It was going back to abstinence only before marriage messaging and not only doubling down on that message, um, but bringing this highly deified version of that message to, to the larger culture. So one of the things that's really interesting is, you know, this, as I said, this was really born in the white evangelical church, but, you know, it was intended to go way beyond that community. And it did. There was a lot of lobbying for money from the federal government government and from the state level uh, for abstinence only before marriage messaging. And uh, and some of that money went to the religious purity purveyors who brought very similar messages to those that I received in youth group into you know, local um, public schools, into grassroots organizations, tied it to funding um, for uh, addressing AIDS globally, uh, you know, so really just <laughs> just an incredible amount of money that brought these things. And then a lot of, um, of social influence. So I don't know if you remember, but in the early 2000s, we actually had Disney stars who were oh, wearing purity Brothers, rings right? yeah. and talking yeah. about it. Yeah. Among others. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of them were, a lot of them were. So, so this, this was a, a really, a, a really major movement that I think a lot of people didn't see and didn't recognize, which is one of the reasons why at the beginning, when you said, you know, maybe you and I experienced this, but others might, might um, feel <laughs> like, like aliens when they hear it. But I feel like, but I feel like we all can recognize this, you know, maybe not everyone was taking a pregnancy test, though they weren't having sex, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I think that this experience of sexual shame, by which I mean not sexual bashfulness, but this feeling that something about our sexuality makes us bad, right? Makes us wrong, makes us impure, or whatever it is. I think this experience of sexual shame and hiding and not talking about things is, is, is very universal in many ways and is largely rooted in the fact that this movement didn't come out of nowhere, you know, that the conditions for this movement had been well established in Christianity and, and you know, beyond Christianity. Yeah. Um... I wonder if you think that there's a distinction between raising your child to be religious and brainwashing. And I, the reason I say that is because when you when you make the point that a lot of people, I mean, even people who weren't necessarily exposed to the purity movement, um, have some basis for sort of understanding its underpinnings. Is there like, do, do you have a sense in your own 
exploration of this topic and the interviews that you've done and the people that you've talked to, do you have a sense that there is a line, whether it be a clear line or a blurry line between raising a child to be religious and brainwashing your child to behave in a certain way, which is, I mean, I think, I think your suggestion, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, but that the purity movement was essentially an example of brainwashing, right? And it, to some degree, like you, it's training your brain to react a certain way to physical experiences. How do you do this responsibly? Is like, what's your relationship to that now? Well, Oh God, what a what a question, right? Um, brainwash is a loaded term. You know, we we are all constantly shaping and being shaped, and that's just the reality. <laughs> you know, um, so so what is brainwashing and what isn't is, I think, a you know a, a really good question. But but we're all having our neural pathways mm-hmm. shaped mm-hmm. by experience all the time. And I think that there are some people in the purity movement who would have seen it as healthy, helpful rearing of children to keep them safe, you know, in a way that they they would not at all have seen it as brainwashing and perhaps what they were doing wasn't, right? Um, whereas I think there were others who really wanted to create a, um, a force, right? Um, who wanted to create purity uh, activists who were going to stand up, uh, you know, to the president of the United States, as many of them did, you know, at the beginning and the formation of this movement. Um, And they would have required, you know, a much larger level of, uh, of, of shaping of the brain, right? So, so there are certainly all kinds of players here. You know, I, I think one of the things that's hard for people who are raised within the movement is they look at some of the people who taught them these things and they go, God, that's not a bad person and they didn't mean bad things for me, you know? You know, I think a lot of the people who taught these things really believed that they were good and helpful things because they were similar to what they had indeed been raised with when they were growing up and they hadn't taken the time to deconstruct those things themselves. But that doesn't that doesn't uh, change the way in which it impacts us, you know. So, so this question of how we do this <laughs> very dangerous work of child rearing, <laughs> you know, is such a good one. I think it has to be done with tremendous care and and tremendous self reflection and a tremendous amount of listening to young people and not only talking to young people. I think that's where we get tripped up. You know, the reality is, is there were so many times in which my friends and I pushed back and the amount of times that we were silenced and pushed down are countless. I I could tell you so many different stories about times that I pushed back and talked about some of the harmfulness that I was experiencing even while I was in the youth group. And had, I think, somebody really taken the time to say, let's sit down together, you know, I, I, I would like to hear more about this. I think that I might have been listened into speech uh, in such a way that would have allowed me to have even heard myself sooner. So, so I think a lot of it, um, you know, it has to do with just kind of taking down some of those, some of those ideas about 
about answers and people in charge having the answers and there are no room for questions, um, you know, and some of those concepts that that shaped so much my culture. Right. And I, I it seems to me that one of the things that you just kind of put a highlight or two there is that one of the ways of identifying the distinction is between exposing your child to religion and maybe promoting certain religious ideas. Um, but the difference comes in when they start to ask questions and you don't just say, stuff it down. <laughs> like you are, you are going to believe this and do not ask questions. And uh, you know, you are, you should be shamed for ever doubting uh, anything. And like, that seems to be a, a place where um, at least there's some guidance in terms of like the, the, the line between indoctrination versus healthy exposure to ideas uh, can be drawn in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people say to me, you know, well, I do believe that you shouldn't have sex before marriage. Uh, what should I tell my kids? Because I don't want them to grow up hating themselves. <laughs> but I do believe that, you know. And and one of the things that I sometimes say to people is, you know, you can share with them, I do believe this. You can say, this is my belief. This is my experience. But the important thing is for you to also let that be known that they have the agency to be um, to have their own thoughts and to reach their own conclusions, and that you are a a space, a, a non judgmental um, safe space, if you will, to which they can come and talk about not only the ways in which they agree with you, but also the ways in which they don't. Yeah, and I, what I found really surprising about your book is that. Um, just sort of how little there is of the response to your subjects to once they kind of start to deal with this trauma, um, there's very little of that, like, and so the hell with Christianity, like, you know, there isn't like a lot of resentment towards the religion itself. There also almost seems to be in a lot of your subjects, a um, a desire to sort of hang on to the the fundamentals of the religion. Um, I was really struck by, one in particular, um, the, the, the subject who is now named Eli, um, who grew up as Elizabeth and, and now identifies as, as a man, that both of those names are, are, are incredibly biblical. <laughs> I mean, like, mm. right? And, and it I, I can't, can't be a coincidence. I mean, and when you have the chance to kind of reform your identity and, and change your name, it could be anything, really. I, I know plenty of people who have just chosen completely different names when they've gone through a, a transition. Um, but that struck me as as a lot of these subjects seem to really also be dealing with wanting to maintain some relationship to that religion, like some love that of the of the tradition that has stuck with them, and and that seeming to be part of the the quagmire they're trying to navigate. Well, to be sure, a number of people do not have that experience. Right. You know, there are a lot of people who will never step foot in a church again. Right. Um, and 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 I fully support that as well, right? You know, much like much like um, what I was saying for a recommendation for parents. You know, I am in full support of people having full agency <laughs> in regards to where they're at with religion and spirituality. But yeah, you're right. There are a lot of people who who want some piece of what they were were raised with, and uh, I understand. You know, I grew up. I grew up 
having some of my most powerful, intense experiences in this community and with this God that I didn't want to trade for anything, for anything other than for myself, right? It wasn't until I really felt like I was being asked to let go of myself in order to have it all that I, I ultimately said, okay, that's not a trade I'm, I'm able to make anymore. But, uh, you know, I remember, I remember those moments of having my eyes closed and singing with a group of people and feeling like there's something among us that is not of us. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to let go of. You know, one of the things that we learned in evangelicalism was that you're either in or you're out. In fact, I remember a sermon when I was growing up <clears throat> that said, you can either be hot or you can be cold, but the worst thing you could be is lukewarm. I'd rather have you be ice cold than lukewarm, right? I'd rather have you be the most on-fire believer or the most non-believing atheist than to be somebody who believes but maybe sometimes comes to church and sometimes doesn't. You know, So there's really this culture of binary. You're in or you're out. You're pure or you're impure. You're saved or you're lost. Right, and I, and and that's that sort of speaks to what you were saying earlier that that it's it's as soon as you start asking questions, that's the problem, right? You can be condemned to hell or you can be all in, but you can't ask questions. That's lukewarm. That's right. That's right. Yes, that's lukewarm. Right. Exactly. You can't struggle and contend within this space, challenging what we're teaching. You know, if you if you reject it wholly, you know, and absolutely, then you still fit into the binary you know, but if you're asking questions in a more complex way, you know, then you're the real threat. You're the threat to the binary on which the entire model is based. So a lot of people, when they leave, you know, are under the impression that, you know, and certainly I was, that they're losing all of it because they went from being an us to a them in a instant, you know, and, and the journey, the journey for a lot of people who still yearn for some connection to spirituality or some connection to that community or whatever it may be, you know, is a long one to find your way back to a kind of spirituality or religion that allows you to be your whole self and allows you to have that agency to have a, you know, your own experience with God. <laughs> Um, but a lot of the people I, I have interviewed, yeah, they're on that journey. They're on that journey of where am I going to land with this? You know, do I, do I ever want to come back into a church? Maybe, maybe not. A lot of people know, right? Um, but for a lot of folks, they want to come back into something, right? Even if that's just into a feeling that they can pray without it being an act of blasphemy, which is what I was taught. I was taught if you pray as a non-believer, it's an act of blasphemy. It's like to have the audacity right. to try to speak to God <laughs> when you don't when you don't agree with us. Yeah. Um, I know we just got a couple minutes left, um, and that I know you have to run. But I I I, I really want to talk to you very quickly about um, Joshua Harris because I think that's someone that again for people who are completely unfamiliar with this whole movement, he is the the sort of uh, the launching pad, really, of sort of the modern version of this. I know you're not a vindictive person in general, but Joshua Harris, who started sort of, he wrote a bunch of books. You, you mentioned a few of them in your own book. 
Um, he was very popular with a young audience. He was this very charismatic preacher. And I think around the time that your book came out, he announced that he was leaving his wife and that he was no longer a Christian. Mm-hmm. And that he had sort of, it seems, come to realize that everything that he had been teaching and doing was toxic um, and that he had been living his own lie. I, I know that, you again, you're not vindictive, but how do you, how do you feel about that? How do you, how do you think most people sort of within the movement have been processing the sort of the, the vanguard of that movement, essentially walking away from it entirely and saying, oops, sorry? I mean, first of all, if if Joshua Harris had not written all of those books and become really the darling of the purity movement, uh, we would be having a very different conversation because I will tell you that the story that he shared is so similar to stories that I've heard over and over and over and over again. You know, people, people think, um, well, if the purity stuff is wrong, then there is no God, right? That's the end, you know? And, um, and, and really, I think that's, that's what you heard from Joshua Harris. Like if the purity stuff is wrong, then, then it's all crap, (laughs) you know? Um, and, and it can be really destructive to your life. Your whole life can blow up, which I think is an illustration of just how deep this purity um, movement really went. You know, for a lot of people, you know, the purity teachings were Christianity. So if you believe that you can um, have a healthy life, you know, without following these purity rules, then then the whole thing collapses, right? So, so I, so the first thing I'll say is just his story is so familiar. It's one that I've heard over and over and over and over again from people. And he's really going through a deconstruction process. I, I um, follow him on Instagram and it's always really interesting to see his Instagram posts. He has a lot of posts about question everything and things like that now, right? Yeah. 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 You can just see, he. you can just like feel his like, ah, life, you know, you can just feel him. But, um. But, you know, of course, he is in a very unique situation. He was a leader of the purity movement, but a really interesting leader. So I have a I have a whole category of leaders from the purity movement who have come to me and who have told me that they regret. Um, I mean, leaders of the purity movement. None of them have been public, right? All of them are older white men. Um, who usually have had some personal experience, maybe maybe their child came out or something along those lines that pushed them, or perhaps there was um, a sexual assault in the family, but something happened that pushed them to challenge their assumptions, and um, and they came out on the other side realizing that they had dedicated a huge amount of their life and their time and their energy and their money to something that was deeply damaging and is deeply damaging. So there are all these people who are coming to me telling me that story. And I've actually been talking to some of them about maybe maybe um, telling their stories and apologizing. But Joshua Harris was an interesting character because he was a major power player. I mean, he sold, I, I mean, I think that the he got an award for selling over uh, was it a million copies? I wrote about it in the book. He got an award for that, but he was so young. <laughs> it's like he was all—he was our age, mm-hmm. right? And he was a survivor. Yeah, you know, yeah. which yeah. we didn't know then. And he was twenty-one when that book 
that first book came out, which means, you know, he wrote it who knows when. But it takes a, a while for a book to come out even after you finish reading, writing it. So, I mean, he probably he probably finished writing that book at 19, you know. So he was one of us. <laughs> he just He just happened to be one of us who had a platform. And that platform resulted in countless people being deeply damaged. I mean, deeply damaged. I, I think a lot about that and about the responsibility. You know, we were talking about Augustine earlier. We were talking about parenting earlier. You know, n- none of these things should be taken lightly. You know, whether, whether we're young or whether we're, you know, feel that we're older and established, we have to do our personal work. We can never assume that we've got all the answers. Because once we do, you know, we run into dangerous, dangerous ground. Um, and, and in that culture, it was a culture where answers were, or it is a culture where answers are the only way. So, so here you go, right? Here's, the, here's what has happened. <laughs> you know, those, those people who felt that they had answers um, you know, ended up shaping a generation. And some of them are realizing that they've done tremendous harm today. And the movement, I think, has to really sit with that. And, um, and, and on an individual level, people are responding very differently. You know, I hear some people saying, you know, I, I feel a tremendous amount of compassion. And, you know, we were all just pawns in this thing. And I hear other people saying, too little, too late, you know, like, thank you for saying you're sorry, I guess. But, you know, how? look at my life. Look at my ruined, ravaged life, you know, um, and, and the incredible privilege that, um, that you had to shape it and, um, and the responsibility, the responsibility. So, so we got to do our work (laughs) and I'm grateful. I'm grateful that some of these folks that I'm talking about are doing their work now. And what I hope is that they will come out on the other side, very vocal, um, and ready to not only heal themselves, but to be part of others healing because they owe it to us. They owe it to us to heal and to help us heal because, um, because we have a lot of healing to do. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time and it was that was a long answer. That was a long That's answer. That's okay. It'll be edited down. Yeah, Don't please worry about edit it. me. Edit me. It's okay. You're going to be very easy to edit. <laughs> Before we go, can you, do you want to tell the people how to acquire your, your, uh, your book and what else you're doing? Sure. The book is called Pure and the subtitle is Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free though certainly young women are not the only ones who were shamed by any means. Um, but that's the population that the book really focuses on. So yeah, so you can get that just about anywhere, um, I hope. The other thing that I would encourage people to check out is, um, one, I have a nonprofit called Break Free Together. 
And the title is really um, a play on the title of the book. So the title of the book is On How I Broke Free, though that's not really accurate. It's not something that I did, (laughs) you know. Um, It was something that we did. It was really through the experience of interviewing people and being given the incredible opportunity to hear their stories and to share my story with them that I healed. Uh, So Break Free Together is really rooted in story exchange in a way as a tool to help people to heal from purity culture. Uh, So I offer one-on-one coaching for people who are raised with these things who want to dig in on a personal level. I'm going to start doing group Zoom calls, kind of a community space for people who want to meet others who are struggling with this. Um, And then through Break Free Together, we're going to be training people uh, through an e-course soon that we're developing, but you can sign up to be alerted with more information on the website now. Um, We're training people to be able to lead these kinds of healthy uh, sexuality story exchanges with their existing community. So whether it's around, you know, a potluck uh, dinner table or whether it's on a Zoom call, depending on you know, what the world is going to look like after, um, after we move out of social distancing, you know, when, when that happens one day. Um, we want people to be able to bring these conversations to their communities if they feel safe and ready to do so. And we want them to not have to bring them to their communities if they're not, which is why, you know, we're, we're doing some of those other community building efforts around the coaching and the, um, the online groups, which are more anonymous. So those are just a few ways for people who are interested in getting involved in a healing experience. They can all be found at breakfreetogether.org. And as for me and social media, I'm mostly on Instagram these days, Linda K. Klein, K-A-Y is my middle name. Um, And Break Free Together has a pretty cool Instagram account too, where people have been sending in postcards um, with their stories. Uh, So that might be something folks would want to check out too. Um, Good to talk to you. Let's do it again sometime. All right. I would love that. Thanks, Linda. Say